Amen. Well, uh, I'm excited about this series, which is Caleb, A Life of Faith. And I have to thank Miguel, actually, for uh, this series because we were on a staff retreat. He had us do some devotions uh, around the life of Caleb. And we sort of traced the life of Caleb through Scripture. And I thought afterwards, well, that would actually make a nice little series. And I was thinking that it would be good for us to explore the topic of faith. And so that's what we're able to do. We started with Miguel last week looking at Numbers 13. And uh, this week we're going to look at Numbers 14. So if you would open your scripture to Numbers 14. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. want to um, make sure you're able to follow along. It's, a, it's, to me, a very powerful and beautiful story here in Numbers 14. And I love preaching on faith. I love hearing sermons on faith. I love reading scriptures on faith. Um, I feel like faith is, is sort of like that bike tire that needs to be pumped up every so often. Um, on my bike, I keep that, that tire, you know, really high pressure. So even 24 hours later, after I've been riding my bike, I have to, you know, pump it back up to what it's supposed to be again, because it'll lose that pressure. And for me, faith is kind of like that. I need this continual drip to kind of get my faith back up to where it is. And that's what so much of the scripture is about, in particular this chapter in Numbers 14. So I'm very excited and looking forward to um, to studying it together with you today. Now let me catch you up before we read, uh, starting in verse 1 there, to what's going on. Uh, you'll remember the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt, and uh, God provides a way out of that slavery in Egypt. That's what Exodus means, is way out. So God provides an exodus from slavery for his people. And they come out of Egypt and they're being pursued by the Egyptian, the Pharaoh's men. And they come to the Red Sea and it's like a dead end and the pursuers are behind them. What are they going to do? And God parts the Red Sea and they pass through uh, on the other side. And then when the, when the, when the, the army comes in, to the Red Sea, God closes the sea on them, and so the people of Israel are protected from their enemies, and they are then moving in the wilderness towards the promised land, this land of, it says in scripture, milk and honey, where they're going to have all that they need, and they're going to be able to settle down and have peace, and just before they get there, they send out spies to go and look at the land, 12 spies, one from each tribe. And the spies go out, and this is what we looked at last week in Numbers 13. And they, they, they look at the land, and they come back, and the 12 spies have a divided report. Ten of them say, the people are big, it's too scary, we'll never be able to get this land, we'll never be able to enter in, we're going to get overwhelmed by the people living there. And two spies come back and say, no, God is bigger than all that. We can go and take the land. He's going before us. He's going to protect us and watch over us. And that's basically where we pick up the story in Numbers 14. Now the people are responding to the report that the spies have given. Verse 1. Then all the congregation, that's the people of Israel, raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And if you're an underliner, you should underline that word grumbled. It's one of the main themes in this chapter. And it has to do with murmuring, with repeating the negative over and over again, seeing what isn't happening. And what we're going to discover is grumbling is basically a kind of a spiritual disease that has infected the people of Israel. Verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt 
or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So they wanted, now they want an anti-leader, a leader who's going to lead them backwards to the slavery that they just came out of. They're so distraught by the report of these spies. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. That's what you do when you're really distressed. And he said to all the congregation of the people, of Israel, And they said, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, and let me remind you, they know the answer to that question. Because they've been through all kinds of stuff to this point. They know God delights in them and is for them. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, which is the traditional way. But the glory of the Lord appeared at this tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So, so God intervenes before they're going to stone these reporters who disagree and verse 11 and the Lord said to Moses how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you Moses a nation greater and mightier than they So God wants to go all the way back basically to Genesis 12 where he picked Abraham and said, I'm going to make out of you and your family a great nation that will serve me. God wants to wipe away Israel and go all the way back and now Moses will be the new Abraham and start over and create a new people. Well, Moses doesn't want that. So verse 13, he said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please, let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, which is that word that we often talk about. If you know one or two Hebrew words, this is one of them. It's hesed, 
And it's all throughout the Old Testament. It, it refers to God's love, his cherishing of his people. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. There's Moses before God pleading with him not to destroy these people. What's God going to do? Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. That's amazing. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. So they're going to turn around. They're going to have to wait to go in to the promised land until the generation of disbelievers passes. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithfulness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. We're going to talk today from this text about taking the path of faith. Taking the path of faith. And we're going to do it in two moves. First of all, I want to talk about Numbers 14 briefly understanding what's going on here. And then I want to talk about what that pathway of faith looks like. What does it look like to walk the path of faith? So first of all, Numbers 14, there are three sets of groups of people or God in this that we've got to kind of understand a little bit to make as much sense as we can out of 
this wonderful story. The first is the grumblers, you might have guessed. Uh, the grumblers. They are the ones who look at their surroundings and they see that it's not what they wanted. And so they start to weep and cry and they start to scheme in their own mind to control the situation, to raise up a new anti-leader, to take them back into slavery. And anybody who stands against that plan is in threat of being stoned. And God, because of their disobedience, intends to cut them off completely, completely. But Moses intervenes. He intercedes on their behalf. And that's a really important moment because Moses' intercession there is going to become a kind of a harbinger for what Christ will do. In fact, we see linkages to Christ in the New Testament. Just as Moses leads them on this way out, this exodus, the work of Christ on the cross will also be referred to as the exodus of Jesus. He's lead, just as the people of Israel were led out of the slavery of Egypt, Christ leads us out of the slavery of sin in the New Testament. And so, if you're a grumbler, anybody a grumbler? Got a lot of positive responses to grumbling in the first service. You look at life, it's not the way it's supposed to be, and you murmur underneath, you complain, you kind of ask God why, but you're just really more complaining, you're not really praying, prayer grumbling we call that. There's no faith in it, right? That's a big deal, actually, in Numbers 14. Grumbling is a big deal because it it shows a, a failure to grasp who God is, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's a big deal in Numbers 14. It's a serious kind of offense. And here's the good news, that there is one who intercedes for the grumblers. It's Moses here. He intercedes for the grumblers. And what does God say? He says, I have pardoned them. Oh, that's, that ought to be good news for grumblers around the world, including here. And for me, that God is willing to pardon us in our grumbling. And we know that because of the work of Christ. But there's another piece to the grumblers. They do miss out on the promises. They miss out on the fruit of their faith, which would be to enter into the promised land and enjoy this land of milk and honey. So they're not completely cut off, but they miss out on the fruit that would have come from a faithful response to God. So the grumblers show us what can happen when grumbling takes over our lives, when the spiritual disease of grumbling sets in. The second one I want to talk about is God. So we've got the grumblers and then we've got God. God's holiness is on display in this particular chapter in some very powerful ways. He's going to wipe out the whole lot of them and go all the way back to Genesis 12 and start over. And he would be justified in doing so. As he says, these ten times I have shown you my faithfulness, my hesed, my love, my ability to to protect you, and you still don't want to follow me. So so he would be justified in, in taking that course. But because of what Moses says, he decides not to. He does relent. But before we go to the relenting... It is helpful spiritually for us to sit in God's holiness for a moment. 
when we begin our journey with God, we oftentimes feel a little overwhelmed by the holiness of God. And we have this temptation to diminish God's holiness or maybe just not deal with it very much or not think about it. But the holiness of God that's so much on display in this text is an incredibly important aspect to his character. And our grappling with God's holiness helps us to grow, helps us to understand how to relate to God. It is hard to sink into the appropriate humility and followership and obedience to God unless we come to terms with his holiness. Because when we, when we think about God and his holiness, our response tends to be a sense of awe. And the appropriate attitude with which we approach God should always include a sense of awe. And you know how it is when you have a sense of awe, you realize how small you are, you realize that God's big and, and, and you don't know. And, and so it's very important for us to grapple. You realize that there's a power to God that you can't overwhelm in your own strength, that, that, you, are, that you are right-sized in relation to God. So very important spiritual value in reflecting, not going too quickly to the relenting, and remembering that the God we worship is not some kind of fairy God, but he's actually a holy God. And we see that throughout Numbers 14 here. But he does relent. The good news is that he does relent because as Moses prays, in fact, Moses prays God's words back to him. This is a really good form of prayer, by the way. To say to God, you say this in Scripture, so be faithful to yourself. Moses quotes God back to him in verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's all over the pages of the Old Testament. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. And, 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 and Moses says, because that's your character, will you consider a different course? And will you consider pardoning your people? And then he also says... Um, because of, of your glory, in verse 20 and 21, um, because of your glory, I, uh, God says, truly, in verse 21, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to test, etc., etc., etc. We already read that. So on the basis of his character and the, his glory, which is to be manifest all throughout the earth, it says, he relents and he brings Forgiveness, which says to us that this God in this example is a trustworthy God. He will act according to his character. He will be consistent. He will be a God of integrity. And this is a very important truth when we think about having faith in God. Because if God is whimsical and changes his mind all the time, then we would have reason to distrust but the God of the Old Testament is faithful. He's a God of integrity. And so, as we'll come back to, we can trust him. The third group, we've got grumblers, God, and then we've got what I would just to have G's here. The go-getters, Caleb and Joshua. These are the, the men of faith in this text. And their speech essentially says, look, everybody, you're seeing with your eyes the big giants in the land. But you need to see with the eyes of faith the God who is over it. Essentially, their speech is saying, don't look at the giants in the land. Look at the bigness of God. And they're so identifying with, with God that they tear their clothes because um, they just can't stand to see 
the disobedience of the people of Israel. And God describes their character in verse 24. He says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have a different spirit? The next phrase describes it. And has followed me fully. That's what it means to have a different spirit. Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. As we think about Numbers 14, as we think about our lives, this is what my prayer has been for us. Caleb and Joshua are the example. They have a different spirit, a different approach to the circumstances in front of them. And it is my prayer that we, too, sitting here today, having this little window to study this scripture, that the Holy Spirit would come on us and we would have a different spirit. That we would be enabled to see in the way that Caleb sees and the way that Joshua sees. Uh, This is the path of faith. Caleb and Joshua show us the path of faith. And so I want to talk about that uh, briefly. I want to talk about the path of faith bringing clarity. And then uh, a little bit after we'll talk about how it brings fruit. But first of all, let's think about how the path of faith brings a kind of clarity. And you see this in Caleb and Joshua in some powerful ways. So the paradox of walking with God is often this, is that what we see in a particular moment of time can actually be less real than what we don't see. The journey with God often entails this kind of paradox where you look around you and, and all signs point to the reality being X or Y or Z, but, but actually... Because of the God who works behind the scenes and is powerful, the reality is different than what you can see with your eyes. And and that's the genius of Caleb and of Joshua. The people of Israel can only see the reasons for grumbling. They can only see their current predicament. They cannot see beyond it. They cannot see the, the one who's over it. So the grumblers react to what they see. They weaken, they weep, and they cry, and they scheme, and then they want to stone anybody who doesn't agree with them. But Caleb sees what God promises, but that cannot be seen yet. The promise of the promised land, which they have not beheld, which they have not seen, which they have not taken hold of, but is nonetheless theirs because of the promise of God. So which are you going to see is the question. Are you going to see what's right before your eyes or are you going to see what God has promised? That's the question. Caleb sees what has been promised. And that's why he says in verse 9 to them, he's pleading, he's tearing his clothes. He's saying, don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us Do not fear them. The path of faith brings a clarity of vision. I was at a funeral on Thursday of this week in Duluth, Minnesota, and it was two degrees. Um, The funeral was for a friend of mine, and some of you know him, uh, Jeff Sorvik. He was here last year and preached. Um, If you remember, he preached a sermon on high commitment, low control, had this, talked about the Napa Auto Parts. Some of you remember um, that. Anyway, uh, Jeff has been a kind of a mentor to me, um, a pastor to me and to many other 
uh, younger pastors and church planters. And I was with him week before last on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We were in a meeting of about 10 of us uh, all day on those days. And we said goodbye on Friday, um, gave him a hug, and he went home. And on Saturday, 24 hours later at noon, his house burned down, and he was in it, uh, and he passed away. So uh, I got the call on Saturday afternoon. I had just been with him the, the afternoon before. And uh, so it was, a, it, was a, it was an emotional week for me. I jumped on a plane on Wednesday morning and flew to Duluth where, where he ministers and, and pa- used to pastor um, before handing off multiple churches that he planted to leaders that he'd raised up. And uh, we had the funeral on, on Thursday. And it was just jam-packed, 1,200 people or something at this funeral. He was 52 years old and all kinds of pastors there that he had poured into uh, in his life, and he'd raised up young pastors, his family, his son Caleb, and his other son Joshua were there, um, which was a sweet mercy. Um, I had picked this passage long ago, and his daughter Hannah, and they all gave testimony to his life and his faithfulness. And I had this moment as I was sitting in the funeral, looking around at all these people. And feeling like, my goodness, this is actually the most real picture of his life. This is the the diagram of what was really going on in his life behind the scenes. Because you could look at each person that he had touched and that had been moved and transformed by him. Okay, And you could see them all assembled in this room. And you just got this sense of this is what's really been going on beneath the surface. As people gave testimony, you know, I mean, I talk to him on the phone. I see him on social media. You know, we're in meetings together. That sort of daily thing doesn't give you the full picture of what's really happening. See, that's what the eyes of faith are like. They're like a window into what's really going on behind what you see with your physical eyes. They show you what's going on in the, in the deeper parts, in the behind the scenes, what God is accomplishing, what he's doing. And the pathway of faith brings a kind of a clarity. I'm sitting in the funeral and I'm thinking about eternity, right? I'm thinking about Jeff stepping into eternity. And they showed this beautiful verse from Isaiah about, you know, meeting your king and then this land stretches out. It's like a verse about, the, about heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he walks in there and he, he says to the Lord, you know, I had so much to do still. I was only 52 years old. I was going to, and as he's saying those things, you know, the glory of meeting the Lord is beginning to overwhelm him, right? And the land stretches out for eternity. And all of the things that happen in this life start to recede into their proper place, Right? That's what the eyes of faith do. They, reap, they put everything into perspective. And you see life in relation to eternity and the glory of God and being absorbed into that glory forever and ever and ever. That's what's really happening. Right? And the eyes of faith enable you to see that. So often the physical eyes can't peer into it. What are we doing right now in this room? A bunch of random East Bay people sitting in a, 
elementary auditorium? Because physically that's what I see. No. There's a bunch of beloved children of God gathered together. And they're singing praises that will redound for all eternity. And their hearts are being filled with the goodness of God's love letter being read out loud to them. And lives are being transformed. The eyes of faith don't see like the physical eyes. They see deeper and beyond what we can see. Maybe you walked in here this morning and your marriage is a wreck and all you can see is what's broken or your family has gone off the rails and all you can see are the frustrations associated with that and you want to cry and you want to weep and you want to go back, you know, somewhere else and and, and you want to, you know, you're just, you don't see beyond the circumstances. And God is calling you to look with the eyes of faith. It is so often that in the broken moments, the hard things of life, that the the transformations take place that need to take place in our hearts and the growth and the relationships are built. The eyes of faith see relational trauma and struggle like that rather than feeling doomed and past hope. When you go to work in the morning, you'd get in a car and drive to some random place and, and just work doing something that doesn't matter with people you didn't choose to be around so that you could get a paycheck. Because that's what the physical eyes see. But the eyes of faith, they see that you have been called to be an ambassador in a particular place, charged with loving these people made in the image of God, but in many cases, needing somebody to come along and speak God's goodness and grace into their lives. That's what you're doing when you get up and you go to these places. Not just so you can get a paycheck. And, and the things that you do are, are healing things, they're redeeming things, they're creative things, they're sustaining things. And they all come out of the very fact that you've been made in the image of God. Made to do this. And it brings pleasure to God and to you to work and to do the things that that you've been given to do. See, the eyes of faith see the world in a whole different way. And Caleb and Joshua are our mentors in this. They give us this idea of clarity. And once we start to see the world in that way, something happens. We step into the place of fruitfulness. That's what the scripture teaches us. Because those who did not see with the eyes of faith, though thank God... They were not cut off and destroyed. They missed the promised of the promised land. They didn't get to enter in. They weren't cut off, but they missed the promise. The grumblers are forgiven, but they don't get to see the fruit of faith. And this is a theme that's all throughout Scripture. It's not just here. It's all throughout the New Testament. Let me just quote Jesus to you and let these just sort of wash over you. Jesus talks about this over and over again. He says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And then he commends person after person who comes to him with a physical need and believes that he can heal them. He says uh, to, to, and he said to her, let me just read a few of these. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And he said to him, another one, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. 
Matthew 17, 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And then, of course, when it comes to our very salvation, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a very important theme that that fruit is tied to faith. So what are the giants in your life this morning? What are the giants? You think about the where are the places where the giants hide, right? They hide in families, in relationships, they hide in marriages where there's brokenness and, and pain and struggle. They hide in, in your workplace with your boss. They hide in your relationship with your coworkers. That's where the giants the, the want to overwhelm us. That's where they hide, right? They hide um, in our society around us right now. We're talking a lot about the systems of this world and the political Front And for many of us, there are giants looming in that. And I know I've talked to some of you and there's daily discouragement. And the giants are hiding in those places. And they're hiding in the things of the world. Um, our housing situation and being in the Bay Area sometimes can be incredibly overwhelming. Um, our finances, the giants hide in all of these places. Um, they hide in us. as they're, they're lurking about when we gather as a church because we're in the least churched area in the country. And what does it mean to start a church and to, to multiply more churches in this place? It just seems like it would be an overwhelming task. And, and there's giants on the horizon. And the example of Caleb and of Joshua is that we would shift our vision to look away from the size of the giants And to look towards the one who's greater than than all the giants of this world. Right? I mean, that was the problem of the people of Israel. They focused on the giants. That's what they could see. They focused on the problem. And then Joshua and Caleb, they focus on the problem solver. Okay? And it's a shift in vision. You're looking here and now you're not going to look there. You're going to look here. And that's going to change the way you respond. I was talking to Kevin Pete, who's a motorcycle rider, and he was telling me about riding a motorcycle around a cor- corner. And it's very important where you look, because if you look in the wrong place, you will crash. And what happens to people is they start to go around the corner, and they're afraid they're going to crash into this rock or this part of the corner, and so they start to look at it. And here's the problem. When you're riding a motorcycle, you go where you're looking. So if you look at the place where you think you might crash, then you will go there and crash. And so you have to constantly train yourself to look through the corner to a different spot where you want to end up being, even though it doesn't feel like you're going to get there. It's a shift of vision, okay? It's a shift of vision. And that's what we're being called to this morning as a people, to shift our vision, both collectively and in our individual struggles, to shift our vision, to look elsewhere, to look Not at the problem, but the one who can solve the problem. That's the example of Caleb and Joshua. It's a vision shift. Now, I want to give you a little caution on this. Even in so doing, life 
of the life of faith often turns out different than we expect. Jeff, my friend who passed, experienced this. His son Joshua, well, first of all, this is such a Duluth story. His very first church that he pastored, the previous pastor was angry that he had gotten fired and so threatened to shoot him on the Sunday that would be his first Sunday preaching in the church. So he showed up his very first Sunday and cops were all around the building, right, to protect him. Then he got through the sermon and preached the sermon. That's Duluth, right? Um, what a place. Um, and, 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 and so he got through that. His, his son Joshua was skiing and, and hit a tree and became a paraplegic. And Joshua went up in his wheelchair and gave testimony to Jeff's life and his ministry during that season. And he gave testimony to God's faithfulness despite that struggle. Uh, And then, of course, Jeff's passing in this fire, in this house that he had built. Log cabin in the wilderness, beautiful. He built, and it burns down, and, and he died. That was not his plan, right? His son... Accident, not his plan. So, and yet, with all that, in the funeral, you looked around and you said, his life has achieved what it was intended to achieve. Look at all these. Now, that's not the way we would go about doing it. So we just have to be careful. When we step out in faith, it might not look what we expect. But that doesn't mean that God is not working deeply and powerfully to accomplish his goals. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us? The spirit that you talk about in this story of Caleb that's different from the grumbling. We repent of our grumbling this morning because we know it doesn't fit with who you are. You're You're big and powerful and trustworthy. And our grumbling doesn't fit. So we repent and we thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ for grumblers. And we ask you to pour out your spirit on us, to fill us with the kind of faith so evident in Caleb. Can't wait to see the next chapters in Caleb's life and how it's worked out. Fill us with that faith. Honor your character and your glory in us as we respond to you in faith. Whether it be the very first time this morning where we just come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or the thousandth or more time of trusting in you yet again for the circumstances that face us in this moment. Honor yourself in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.